Church, it's so good to see everybody. I love your faces. I love your voices. It's good to see you. So we're going to continue in 1 Peter this morning, and you can find that on page 1014 in your Blue Bibles. And while you're turning there to page 1014 in the Blue Bibles, let's consider where we are in the text. The past few weeks, we've seen Peter lay out hard things to understand, things which no eye has seen, no mind has conceived. He's spoken of the Trinitarian masterpiece of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, all working in unity on a salvation that is past and present and future. We've seen thus far a salvation that is bigger than time. It's certainly bigger than our works. It's bigger than our merit, even beyond our full understanding, because it's so glorious. It's bigger than us because our salvation is not ultimately about us, but about the God who designed it from heaven, from before the foundation of the world, and then gave it to us as an imperishable inheritance kept in heaven for us. Peter is writing to Christians exiled across Rome, those whom the world rejects. But Peter tells them that they are actually not exiles, but chosen by God, out of the world and for his glory. And not just chosen unto salvation, but also chosen to be set apart and live according to the extraordinary calling of their salvation, to be transformed in the inside as new creations for heaven. Now, the idea of their salvation is imperishable and transcends time was not hard enough to understand. He also tells them that although they are scattered in one sense, they are in another sense actually being drawn together in a spiritual house of living stones built around Jesus, who is the cornerstone. Jesus, whom they've not seen, but yet they still love. Now, in light of all this happening, that they and we cannot see, that the prophets have been trying to see for ages and the angels are even longing for with a sense of wonder. In light of all the imperishable Trinitarian work happening outside of time and space, now we get to a part of the letter whereby the invisible work of God is manifest in time and space and relationships and hard providence that we can see. Today, Peter brings us to the practical outworkings in life, in his invisible work from heaven, namely, submission in human relationships and in the hardships of life which God has placed on us. If the challenge thus far has been speaking of things we've not seen, the challenge ahead, saints, dear church, the challenge ahead is to believe God in what you do see but what may be hard to accept. That if we were made, it, made for glory, then why are we called to live submissive lives now under hard providences? Suddenly, it's not what we can't see that's hard to understand, but things which we can't unsee that are hard to accept. Church, God's way of things is to accomplish the greatest, most glorious ends through the most unlikely means, death and burial and resurrection. First, of his own son, 
than of us. For consider this, God accomplished our salvation through the death and resurrection of his son and is now accomplishing our holiness, our sanctification by his spirit in us through our circumstances, namely our submission that we'll see today and our suffering as we'll see in the next two weeks until he delivers us to glory that we'll see in three weeks, conforming us to our calling that we saw over the past two weeks. So that's where we are in the letter. That's where we're going. So today I invite you to join with me as I make five observations from the text as we walk through it together. So let's read together now from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13, all the way through chapter 3, verse 7. This is God's Word. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, church, this is a powerful passage with lots of terrific application. Let us pray and ask God to help us understand it. Oh God, you have given us your word. We pray that you would now give us your spirit. Apply these truths to our hearts, oh God, not just so that we better understand the scripture, but that we might be changed by it. Oh God, if you have saved us from eternity past, if you have brought us here this morning, then Holy Spirit, would you please, even now in these moments, change our hearts to be conformed by your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we consider, first let's see that our submission is for the Lord's sake. It's the first observation that I hope we will make this morning. The why we submit and to whom we submit are on account of him, of God. He is the reason. We see this a couple of times in the passage, that we are, that we are to be conscious of God in our daily lives in submission to authority. We see it first here in chapter 2, verse 13, where we are called to be submissive for the Lord's sake to every human institution, namely the governing authorities. But we see it again in verse 219, where he says, it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, servants endure harsh masters. Then we see Jesus model this for us in verse 223, where he is certainly conscious of God in his submission. He's actually entrusting himself to God as an active expression of the will. Then we see what consciousness of God looks like in marriage. When we look in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where wives are called to mindfully submit to their husbands with an eye towards what God may do in their husbands' hearts through their conduct. And not only wives, but husbands are called to live in marriage with an eye towards the Lord. Because a husband's relationship with his God is contingent in some way with his relationship to his wife. A man ought to live with his wife in such a way that will not hinder his prayers. And thus, he lives with her, with God in mind. Perhaps we're reminded here of Peter's call to us in chapter 1, verse 13, where we started last week, where he says, prepare your minds for action. Because the first thing we see in the text here is that submission in human relationships is rooted in a clear-minded consciousness of God. Saints, Christian submission is predicated on being aware of who God is in what he's done. If we are, then our submission is an expression of faith and hope in God. Otherwise, church, 
We're merely mindlessly going along with the flow. And this misses the point of the call to us last week to be set apart and be different from the world. To live according to our calling, as we saw early in chapter 1. Part of the way the Spirit sanctifies us and sets us apart is to teach us to think differently about the world and from our old nature. Before we were brought to the light, perhaps we, perhaps we submitted to authority to avoid conflict or to avoid consequences or to avoid having to think for ourselves and make our own decisions. Perhaps we didn't obey at all and we loved to disobey. But when we did obey, was it out of love for God in response to his call to be holy as he is holy? Or before we were saved, was it out of moralistic self-righteousness? Because none of these requires a consciousness of God. And none of these are what we see here in the passage. We are not the people we used to be, church. And so we need to see that Christian submissiveness is active, not passive. It is mindful and not mindless. Because if we are submitting from a conscious awareness of God, then our acts are merely mindless compliance. And this is not inherently good or godly. And the opposite is true as well. That if we are mindful of God in our submission, then even mundane acts of obedience are more an act of worship than practical matters of avoiding consequences. We hear God's praise and not man's when we grow in holiness in this kind of submission. Kiddos, this is for you. I want to speak for a moment straight to you here in particular. So kiddos, have you ever found it difficult to obey your parents? And when I say obey, I mean obey from the heart. Have you ever found it difficult to obey your parents from the heart? Perhaps you obey when you have to, but you would just as soon not obey as you would obey, and you would rather not obey and get away with it if you could. And if you have, then I wonder if you've ever thought why this is, kiddos. Why is it that you would not want to obey your parents? Because if your parents give you food, they take care of you, and they give you hugs and love, then why is it that you would resist their authority so much? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever wondered why this is? Well, I'll tell you something. Your parents are the same way towards God. Towards his authority. Towards his providence. Those whom God has placed in authority over us, we struggle with the same things. And kiddos, this is why we need Jesus to help us. To change our hearts and make us new from the inside. To give us hearts that want to obey, who love to obey, especially the one who desires our good. Kiddos, I want to give you this point of application, okay? The next time that you recognize in your heart a rising resistance to your parents' authority and to disobey them, consider whether defiance actually even makes you happy. Or if at the end of it, your heart is hard, and you're sad, and you're mad. And then ask yourself, are you happy this way? Because if you're not, you can ask God for help 
you can ask God to change your heart, to give you a heart that wants to obey, because this is what your parents are doing. This is what we do. We ask God to help us to obey. Church, here's another application for all of us. When we recognize in our own hearts a genuine desire to obey and to submit to authority, we should ask ourselves what that means. If you're a Christian here today and you actually delight in obedience, you should ask yourself why that is because it's not natural. The Spirit is changing you from the inside out. You should thank God. He is setting us apart, just like we saw in the text last week. He's setting us apart according to the calling he's given us in chapter 1. He's making us holy in every obedience wherein we are conscious of God and acting by faith. He is slowly setting us apart to make us look more and more like himself. Well, that's our first observation. The second that we find is that God is conforming us in the inner person through our obedience. For when we are conscious of him, then we can't help but be shaped to be more like him. When we act like him, because we're watching him, because we love him. In this way, he's actually making us new as we submit to authority in the various spheres of life. For example, he teaches us to learn humility when we submit to others who have authority over us. He teaches us humility in preparation for glory so that we are not puffed up with pride. For someday, church, each of us is going to be judging angels, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Perhaps the very angels that we see in chapter 1 who are looking, longing to understand this thing that God is doing in human redemptive history. Church, if we are in Christ, we're going to be judging angels. Left our own devices that will puff us up to tremendous pride unless God teaches us to submit. Before we're given glory, first we need to learn to have quiet and gentle spirits that we see in chapter 3, verse 4, lest we be destroyed by glory. Let me illustrate this from Peter's life. We're in John chapter 13. As the Lord was washing the disciples' feet, Peter says to Jesus, No, you shall never. Even if we assume the most generous motives for why Peter would disobey and refuse Jesus, we'll call it humility, or something that he thinks is humility. Let us consider instead what Jesus says to the Father in the garden when he says, not my will, but yours be done. For all of Peter's humility, it pales in comparison to Jesus' submission. We see God train us to pull us away from the Peter mindset, no God, no Jesus, I'll never, to have a more submissive spirit to our Lord. He trains us by degrees through human relationships that he providentially places in our life. The government under which we're ruled, to, at work where we do our labor, at home where we live our lives, this is the way that God changes us by degrees to be humble that he might glorify us in heaven. In each of these spheres of life, we're told, in each of these spheres of life, we are, in our old nature, drawn to live for self 
and under our own authority, right? At work, under our government, at home, we want to live under our own authority. This is our nature apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. But we see at the very end of chapter 2, verse 25, where this leads us. It says, for you were straying like sheep. That's not a good place to be, church. In our, in our pride and hubris, we stray like sheep unless we learn to be submissive. And here in this part of the text, he tells us servants that they should submit to their masters, being conscious of them for his sake. And those servants who do submit to their masters, aware of God, he says to them that you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In a very practical way, one way that we obey God is by obeying the authority that he's placed in our life. So with that, I want to give you an application. Okay, all of us, each of us here this morning, we are either growing in submission or we are growing in pride because we are, we are in Adam's nature. We are like Peter. If we are not growing in submission to the authority that God puts in us, then in our heart, because we're made in God's image, especially if we're promised heaven, that's going to lead to pride unless we resist it. Where do you hear yourself saying, no, Lord, never? Where do you hear your voice say that in those unguarded moments? Where do you see that played out towards authorities in your life? We can grow nearer to God as we lay aside pride regarding authorities that God has put over us. For submission to human authorities trains us to submit to heavenly authority. Every authority in in the human realm is a shadow of authority in heavenly places. And this is why we should be conscious of God. For as we are, then we are submitting ultimately to God as we faithfully submit to human authority. Sweet church, please hear the word this morning, the scripture, and be conscious of the Lord as you submit to authority. And he will teach you. He will teach each of us to trust him through every providence including suffering, which is what we're about to see in the next two weeks. So a third observation here from the passage is that when we submit as unto the Lord, we are changed on the inside and reflect something of God's wisdom. For as, all we've, for as we've already seen, submission is good. It's not evil. And this is counterintuitive to the world in which we live that says submission is weakness. It's inferiority. It's to be scorned, or at least it's to be avoided where possible. The world says do not submit. See again in verse 2, 14, that the purpose of authority, when it's rightly used, is to punish evil and to praise good. Authority is good, and submitting to authority is good. See also in verse 2.16, where we are to be free and should live as free people, and therefore under authority, by submission, and with freedom. All of these coexist here in the text, and they're all for good and intended for good. And if they are good, then we should not reject them. And if, we are, if they are good, then we should expect that the world and the flesh and the devil would seek to corrupt them. So notice here from the text that our freedom is bound. It's bounded. It should not be used to cover up for evil. 
We have freedom, but Peter says, do not use it as a cover-up for evil. Freedom is bounded, but so is also authority. For we are only called to submit to legitimate authority. We see that in verse 3-1, where the scripture says, wives are called to submit to their own husbands. And in 2.18, where servants are called to submit to their masters. Notice they are not called to submit to men of various kinds in general, but to those who are in legitimate authority over them. Church, we reflect the wisdom of God when we joyfully submit under the authority that God has placed in our lives. And we reflect something of his wisdom when we rightly recognize false authority. For example, there is a church that calls Peter the first pope. And it sets itself up as a supreme authority over people's lives. It carefully tries to anchor papal authority to speak ex cathedra for God. Yet in this very letter, in chapter 5, Peter does not call himself a pope. He calls himself a fellow elder. Peter is no pope, and the pope has no authority to govern anything but his own conscience, if there's anything left of it. Papal authority is completely made up, and those who submit under it are not modeling godliness, but propping up a system that sets itself up on false pretenses. Church, Earnest-minded people submit under false authority, and they are led astray by it, even in the guise of religion. But so also with governments. We are called here to submit to governing authorities. And if we prepare our minds for action, then we can rightly understand the rule of law under which we, in our own context, live. For the scripture here says to submit to emperors, But we have no emperor. We have no human king. We have no king here in this land where God has providentially placed us. Yet we do have a king. We have a rule of law. There are men who would set themselves up up as kings and compel our obedience. But the king in this land is not a man It is the rule of law, and we honor God when we submit under the rule of law. Here's another application. That we should seek to put ourselves under authority, under legitimate authority. And we should resist illegitimate authority where it sets itself up on its own authority. Here's another one. We should learn from right. We should learn the difference between right and wrong uses of authority and discern right from illegitimate authorities and not conflate these. Where authority is used poorly, we should still submit. Just as we see here in the text in verse 218 where Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. In those cases where we have unjust authority over us, then we can then we can find good examples of bad examples of authority, but it's still legitimate, and we should submit. That's what Peter's telling this early church. Jesus told Peter to give unto Caesar what belonged to Caesar. But in Acts chapter 5, 
when Peter was told to stop preaching about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he said, it's better to obey God rather than men. Because no human authority has any authority over the gospel. But sweet church, the world and the flesh and the devil would seek to overcome the gospel and lay waste to the church. We display wisdom, the wisdom of God, when we know when and where to submit. Jesus submitted in the garden when he was under arrest. He did not resist arrest, but entrusted himself to the Father. Peter resisted arrest, and he was wrong. Jesus told him to put the sword away. Then Jesus, before Pilate, said, You would have no authority over me unless it was given you by my Father. He did not resist Pilate, but he did resist the devil. And you know who else Jesus resisted? It was Peter. In Matthew 16, when Peter said, Jesus, you're not going to die. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. We need to learn to discern the difference between authorities in our life and recognize the difference because they sound very similar. They might look very similar, but they are predicated on different sources of authority. We need to discern the difference between authorities that God's put over us and those which only imitate legitimacy, but in fact have none. We should submit to the former in faith, being conscious of God, and we should say fooey in faith to the other. On this point of authority, I want to make another observation regarding husbands, where we see in verse 3-7, they're told to live with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her. Consider that though they are not called to submit to their authority, husbands don't submit to their wives' authority, yet still here, there is a level of submission. There's a sense of it. But it's not on account of their wives' authority, but on account of their wives' needs. That's an important distinction to make because husbands, we submit to our wives, not because they have authority over us. That would be wrong. But we submit to them because they're of the weaker vessel. And we love them. They are co-heirs of the faith, and we want them to persevere to the end as much as we want ourselves to persevere to the end. So we submit to our wives' needs, not their authority, on account of love for them. If we're not careful to make that distinction, this whole thing goes haywire. Haywire. We submit on the right basis, conscious of God, for the good of those to whom we are submitting and for the care of our own souls. There's three applications here I want to make. First, wherever we have authority in our lives, saints, we should use it for good because that's why God has intended it. And we image God when we use our authority as fathers and as mothers, as employers, as in one another's life, where we have authority to speak into each other's life, we should use that authority for good. One way we can do that is by not speaking over one another. We can be patient with one another. We can wait for another. We consider one another's needs because that's what Jesus does for us. Jesus doesn't die for us because he owes us anything. It's not because he's under submission to us. He dies for us because he recognizes our need and he cares for us in a gentle way. 
Okay, um, third. Now, let's, uh, here's the third application, that we should pray for those in authority, recognizing the precarious condition that they're in. For they too, like the flowers we saw last week, are beautiful and powerful and strong for a little bitty season, and then it all goes away. We should pray for those in authority, recognizing that they are but frail men and women, made in God's image, but with beauty and strength for just a little while. Because we know that God judges justly, as we see in chapter 1, verses 17 and following. Because God is a just judge, as we see in chapter 2, verses 23. He's going to judge everyone in authority based on their deeds. So we, in kindness and in submission to our authorities, should pray for them. Pray for your husbands. Pray for those over you at work. Pray for their good, knowing that God has placed them in your life for your good and his glory. And now a fourth observation from the text. That all of this, all of this submission and doing good, to what effect does it achieve? It achieves God's glory. The living hope that he's given us is a proclamation of life to the world around us. In some cases, it silences the foolish talk of foolish people, as we see in chapter 2, verse 15. And in other cases, a submissive spirit draws out faithful praise of those around us, as we see in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. By doing good, we silence foolish talk, and by submitting to God's providence, under God's providence, we win others without a word through our conduct. Later in this letter, we're going to see what it looks like to be ready to give a verbal defense and a testimony for the hope that we have. But could it be that before we have an opportunity to speak the gospel into someone's life, it should first be expressed through the practical living out of our faith in real life, in the relationships that we have? Wives, for you, there's a specific mention of you here as you're called to submit to your husbands without fear. Without fear because you trust in the Lord more than you worry about the uncertainties ahead by following another into the unknown. As you consider the number of times Abraham must have told Sarah, hey babe, I was talking to God. We gotta move. I've never been to this place. I've actually never seen it. But we gotta pack up all our stuff and go. Hey babe, we're gonna have kids. I know, I know. You're laughing. It's ridiculous. You're not that old. You're not, you're, well, you're a little old. We're going to have kids. Right? I know, we're going to have kids. Hey, babe, we, we've had a son, a fine strapping boy. God told me to sacrifice him. I can just imagine Sarah saying, darn it, Abraham. What fearfulness there may have been knocking at her door, the door of her heart as Abraham's trying to trust God and obey. The fearfulness that must be, be surrounding her heart. Peter is saying here, look, don't trust Abraham, trust God. Call Abraham Lord. Submit to him. But don't submit to him because he's all-knowing or because he's perfectly good. But submit to him as Lord because you believe that I will care for you until the end. That's a kind of faith, dear sisters, that you have an opportunity to model before the church. Notice Peter is not saying you should be like Abraham. That's not what Peter's saying here. He's specifically only referencing Abraham 
so that he can talk about Sarah. Sisters, you have an opportunity to be a metaphor of this great faith here in the life of this local church as you live a quiet, dismissive life, obeying your husbands, especially when they're trying to do good, especially when it's hard. She trusted the Lord, and she had a beauty that Peter is talking about here that's characterized by a quiet and gentle spirit. And when yours is quiet and gentle too, then take heart that this pleases God. He calls your disposition towards him precious in chapter 3, verse 4. This word precious, you know what else he's called precious so far in this letter? Faith, in chapter 1, verse 7. And also, the blood of Jesus, in chapter 1, verse 19. So think about this. Your, Your quiet and submissive spirit and faith, and the blood of Jesus are all called by the same word. Precious. Wives, you reflect something of God's wisdom that is compared to gold and silver in verse 3.3. And to be clear, your inner beauty is greater than gold. That's the point here. There's a beauty of things which cannot be seen, but that is revealed in the actions and conduct of those who have gentle and quiet spirits. Sisters, you are a metaphor that God has chosen to point us back to him. Each time in your inner spirit, you point us to Christ by your disposition of quietness and gentleness, tenderness. Jesus, you point us to Jesus, who in verse 2, 22, did not revile others or threaten them when he was under the worst authority, but entrusted himself to the Father who judges justly who trusted the Father who would raise him up in due time. And then finally, a fifth observation from this text. It comes from chapter 2, verses 21 and uh, 2 and 3. And that is that Jesus' submission is the greatest display of glory. He's actually a pattern for us. Jesus is the pattern for our submission. Now, there's a lot of submission and suffering in this text, which is interesting because submission doesn't inherently mean suffering. But in a fallen world, it often does. We're going to see more on the suffering aspect in the weeks ahead. But just considering Jesus and his submissive spirit in this, he submits to the Father. He entrusts himself to the Father who judges justly in 2.23. Submitting to the Father. In the garden, he says to the Father, not my will but yours. He asked that the cup be taken from him, but he was willing to obey and submit under the Father's purpose. He did not seek to come out from under authority. He sought to live under authority and to do exactly what the Father was telling him to do. Because in the very beginning, remember, we saw this Trinitarian masterpiece, Father, Son, and Spirit, before time, in time, and forever time, crafting our salvation. It was the Father's plan from the beginning that the Son would die. And it was the Son's will from the beginning to obey the Father. But here in the garden, this moment, Not when he was going to get a boo-boo from a nail, but when he was going to take on the sin of the world and be damned by God, condemned by God, sent to hell by God for you. That is the moment when Jesus says, if there's another way, please take this cup. But the Father, out of love for you, church, said no. And Jesus, out of love for you, church, said, yes, I will do it. 
and he was cursed. He was condemned. He was crushed for your sins because he was submissive to the Father. That's the point of this passage. He did not seek to come out from authority. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And he sought to be a servant of all because he is the greatest of all. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. And he says that we should be like Jesus. That's what Peter's showing us here. He's an example for us. Paul says, your attitude ought to be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Saints, dear church, Jesus is our pattern in submission do you see this? He is God, and he doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, so he makes himself, what? A servant. To the point of death. He obeys to the point of death. Death, burial, and then what happens? God exalts him and puts him in the highest place. He is our pattern, church. We were made for glory. We are being set apart in holiness. The way God does that is through our death, burial, and resurrection. Very practically, through our submission, learning to submit to human authority, and then very soon submitting under God's providence of suffering so that we are adequately prepared for heaven to be part of this spiritual house that we learned about last week. Living stones built around Jesus as the cornerstone a capacity to understand what we've never seen before because he is shaping us by degrees for that great end. The first step towards that great end is learning to submit to the human authorities that God has put over us. Suffering is next. We'll see that over the next few weeks. But here, before we get there, we first have to learn to submit under human authority. We don't seek suffering, but church, we should each of us seek submission. For without a quiet and submissive spirit, we are doomed to hubris in the dignity that God has given us as being image bearers of him. Well, we started this morning with a reminder of all the invisible, imperishable promises of God in his work in heaven. These are hard to understand. And here, we finish with a very real and practical call to submit under authority. It's not hard to understand, but it's hard to accept. 
It's hard to obey. And that's exactly why God gives us this instruction to prepare us for glory ahead. Because before we get to glory, we'll see the call to submit increase and the intensity of it will increase more and more, requiring more faith that God will give in due time. We don't just submit as masters and husbands are to them, but we submit ourselves to God for his glory and our good. Now, husbands, I want to leave you one, one final point on this. It's disturbing for me. You look at chapter 3, verse 7, and there's a man who's praying to God. But his prayers are potentially hindered because of the way he's treating his wife. That blows my mind because you would think, oh, this man's praying to God. He must be a faithful husband. But that's not necessarily the case. Church, this is more deeply rooted in our hearts than we realize. Hubris and pride. Where even a man who loves God and is praying to God could still somehow overlook his wife. And then be scratching his head wondering, why his prayers just don't seem to be powerful or effective. Peter's saying, it might very well be because you don't treat your wife well. In your role of authority over her life, is she flourishing or not? Because if she's not, then maybe instead of praying to me, you should go talk to her first. This is a difficult passage, not to understand, but to accept. God has given us hard things to understand, and more and more, he's not going to give us hard things to understand, but simply to obey and submit to. That's what we see here in this text, and that's what's ahead over the next two weeks. But God is faithful to church. He is faithful. What he has begun, he will carry us through to the end, and we are going to make it. Let's pray.